Hello, everyone, and welcome to PGR Cast, a podcast created by the Bristol Doctoral College to hear the voices of the postgraduate community here at the University of Bristol. Today with us is Alex Cochran. Alex is an R&D engineer in lightweight materials at the National Manufacturing Institute in Glasgow, Scotland. Alex is also a University of Bristol alumni who graduated with an engineering doctorate in 2019. In this interview, we'll talk about working with industry, careers post-PhD, and the trials of going through a doctorate. We hope you enjoy the episode. So, thank you very much, Claudia, for having me. Um, so, I'm a, currently a research and development engineer for a place called the Lightweight Manufacturing Centre. Uh, this is basically an industrial research institute which is part of what we call the UK's high-value manufacturing catapult. And what we're doing is looking into solving problems on the lightweighting of structures and the use of kind of novel lightweight materials and trying to bring together industry and academia to solve those problems. Um, I actually did an NGD project, um, much like yourself, Claudia, which is more of an industrial PhD um, but it's still kind of the same thing, just that you're more based within a company, trying to solve a technical problem for that company. So you get a supervisor in university, you get a supervisor in the company, who's you call them your sponsor. And in my case, I was sponsored by Rolls-Royce. And just briefly, my project was looking into essentially uh, developing a new mechanical test method for investigating cracks developing uh, in carbon fiber laminates if you hit them very hard. Uh, at very high speed. Uh, I found that very exciting, but it was really difficult at times. Uh, but I was very fortunate to have that uh, as my project. Uh, as to how I came to Bristol, uh, so I actually worked, uh, as soon as I graduated university, I did aerospace engineering at University of Glasgow. Um, I was really interested in kind of doctorates and things, uh, but I found myself going into industry uh, straight away I initially worked for a small company making solid rocket propellant motors for flying things, shall we say. Um, and I really liked that job, but it was based in the West Midlands. found myself wanting to go back to the kind of metropolitan-ness of Glasgow, if we can say that. And I actually got a job working for one of these catapult centres, uh, which was basically looking into, it's called the Advanced Forming Research Centre. It's attached to the University of Strathclyde. And it was looking into solving problems for companies like Rolls-Royce, uh, but also working with kind of academics and applying research uh, to, to, to solve those problems. And that's where I discovered these things called NGDs, uh, which was basically like having doing a PhD, but doing it in a much more applied sense. So, so working to solve a company's problems while working with the university to, to kind of leverage their capabilities and their expertise. Um, and I sort of did some digging as to where I could do one of these. And this kind of magical research center in Bristol popped up, which was in composites. Um, There's loads of people working in composites there. Lots of young people. It looked like the sun was always shining in Bristol, which I now know not, not to be true. <laughs> Lies. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, it is a lie, but it's still quite sunny. Um, and I ended up interviewing for, there's a center for doctoral training in Bristol in composites. And there's also an industrial doctorate center. And so that means you can either do a PhD with the CDT or an NGD with the IDC. I actually applied for both. I interviewed for both. I had a real like moment of decision, but ultimately I felt more at home with the, the kind of NGD with the more industrial uh, focused one. 
And I found it really interesting interviewing. You know, I was interviewed by Rolls Royce directly, and I, I found that it, it felt like it was, it was quite an exciting uh, avenue to go down. So that's how I ended up in, in Bristol. Mm-hmm. And what's the sort of timeline between you graduating from aerospace engineering and then arriving in Bristol? So I graduated in 2014, all that time ago. Um, I graduated in 2014. Um, and I went to, I worked for about a year, just over a year. So I, I worked mm-hmm. in two separate jobs in the year between graduating and uh, starting kind of in Bristol to, to do the doctorate. And I think, I think that was really important. I think that, uh, and we can, we can get onto that later, but I do think going away and getting involved, getting jobs and, and experiencing jobs is, is quite important to then reflect on, on whether it's the right path for you. And did you do a master's at Strathclyde? No. Or so, did you go straight from the, the bachelor's? Uh, so I actually did, I, I did an MEng, which is a, it's an integrated master's in engineering. And I did that all at University of Glasgow. So that was in Scotland, that's five years, um, five years in one go. But you have to do the master's straight after you know it's that's why it's integrated it's a condition of it that you uh, you, you can't if you leave and come back you have to do an msc so so i kind of had a master's already um and the ngd didn't actually our one didn't have a math sometimes you get an msc plus on ngd i think but ours yeah, just had yeah. the ngd um mm-hmm. so and going back to you mulling over doctorates, I'm quite interested in this and you're definitely not the first PhD or ex-PhD person I've spoken to that said, I went into industry and I thought, is this it? And then that's how they ended up doing a doctorate. Was that quite a snap decision? Was it more of a process? So I would say that I didn't always like. Obviously, I went to work straight away after university, so I didn't. I didn't always know I wanted to do a PhD. But when I was doing my undergrad, I definitely knew that I wanted. I didn't just want to pass the exams to go and do a job. I really, really was very into engineering. I was. I really loved the course. It was difficult, but I, I always found myself wanting to do well in it, almost so that I could keep learning. I would feel really really um upset if i'd done badly and and that would be a kind of like well now you have to stop a reflection on yeah and mm -hmm. and so i didn't always at the same time i didn't know that that was probably suitable for a phd you know kind of being more curious about going deeper but i definitely have this kind of inquisitive mindset when i was studying and i it it sounds weird but yeah i didn't i I wasn't doing it just to to get the job at the end and i think that at that point i knew i was interested in, in research but it, it did take me working for a while to realize that jobs, you, you do lose the a lot of the technical stuff, depending on the job you're doing. A lot of them, you'll hear this a lot, a lot of engineering jobs, and I presume in other fields, they, they turn into kind of project management. And there's a lot of other stuff that you do. That's not really engineering. Yeah, it, you, mm-hmm. you kind of lose a lot of the technical side of things. And, and I think it was quite interesting for me to have that experience of going to, to work in a job where I could see people with PhDs working. But they were they were it was definitely relevant that they had PhDs. It was this kind of industrial research center. And I definitely found that something about it, like it was like they'd gone further. They it was almost like they, they had more fulfillment out of their daily work because they'd they'd established that uh, you know they, they they'd gone deeper 
And then it kind of opened up the more technical work to them. And I found myself mm-hmm. thinking, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to not do that. I definitely had a, a desire to, to go further. But I also like the idea that I, I don't like the idea of doing research for the sake of research. I like the idea of someone coming to you with a problem and then you applying kind of knowledge and and your problem solving skills. skills exactly. And that's where the industrial context comes exactly. in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. So would you say that your PhD has helped you enjoy industry more because it's allowed you to then go into the more technical side of industry rather than just management? Uh, definitely, definitely. So some of the people that during my my project, I got to kind of interact with lots of different people from Rolls-Royce. Obviously, they were my sponsor. And the people with the best jobs there were the ones who had done PhDs and were now were in quite senior technical roles. And these are people who still had their names on journal papers. They still attended conferences. They still got involved with supervising students, but they still, they kind of had the best of, of, of all worlds. And you, so while you do get, you know, you get kind of bogged down with all the, 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 the admin and things that come with industry, even if you've got a PhD, it, it, it's always going to be there in those industry jobs. I think it gives you this, it allows you to, to have more of a, a, a a deeper technical role and keep uh, involved in all of those kind of academic connections as well. So that's actually really good to hear because I'm coming towards the end and sort of shifting my workload from industrial to academic deliverables and wondering, am I losing out by not being as involved in my industrial sponsor? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, that's great to hear that there is a middle ground further into your career and is that is that something, for example, that you you have? So how have you maintained your links to academia since graduating? Well, so my, my job is a is an interesting one. I've always told this line between academia and industry, and and at the moment I'm kind of I, I am employed by university because I'm employed by the high value manufacturing catapult, and that's driven by universities, but. I'm dealing with people from industry all the time and I'm kind of sitting in between the two. And I would say that that really does feel like the best of both worlds because you get a lot of freedom and you get to stay involved with academia, possibly not being fully academic. And with all the, the downsides of that, I know, you know, having experienced it now, it's it's difficult, you know, and, and, and anyone that does a PhD and that, that publishes research knows that it's it's a struggle. And that's kind of the point of it. But it allows me to, to so I, but I still get to be involved with that. You know, I, I get in, involved with supervising PhD students. I was just writing a PhD proposal. I'm talking to professors on campus all the time about collaborating. But I'm also talking to companies about what they're really seeing as their problems day to day. And you're able mm-hmm. to kind of, it, it just means you're getting both of those interesting things and you're not put into any any box you know, specifically, which is exactly what my, and Claudia, you'll probably agree, but if you do something like an NGD, you kind of don't fit into any box. And that leads to a lot of existential, (laughs) existential angst. But that is really valuable in the end, you know, that Mm -hmm. you're able to do that. You're okay with not being in any particular box. Um, And I actually just um, had my second journal paper accepted from my Bristol work. So I'm still working with with my supervisor uh, from Bristol to publish the work that was done during my NGD project. So it's, I'm definitely, I want to keep that academic side up. I don't want to, 
it's a bit like I was saying with undergrad. I don't just want to get the results, close the door and never revisit it. Absolutely. Yeah, I like I like that idea that you are constantly going through a learning curve throughout your professional career. And I feel like a lot of engineers that I graduated with maybe went on to consulting jobs and that was them closing the door on this is as far as I get to with my knowledge in engineering. And it it did take me a couple of years into my PhD to realize I'm I'm riding another learning wave uh, curve and you know really enjoying it through all of the challenges that it does bring <laughs> there's there's been there's been times when you talk about that closing that door there's i think we all do it where there's times where i think maybe i should just do that you know move into something completely different but i i can't seem to get myself to close the door you know i want to keep <laughs> it open um, yeah. And I think it, it's research is, is just, in the end, it's just really interesting. Mm-hmm. Going to conferences and stuff, it's just, it's always so kind of vibrant, all the different things that people are doing. And I think it would be a shame to to kind of leave that all behind, you know. And do you see yourself ever going back into academia? Or are you quite happy riding this sort of middle ground between industry and academia? I won't say. <laughs> I think that <laughs> it's it's funny because when you are in the middle like this, you speak to people from academia or industry and you'll get kind of warnings from either about the pitfalls of either. But the mm-hmm. more I go on, the more I'm realizing that everything has its, pitfalls. everything has its, mm-hmm. yeah, everything has its downsides. Like everything's going to be hard in the end. So I, I would say it's definitely, a, if I could make that work, that's something that really interests me because sometimes I look at professors and stuff and think they have the best job in the world they're definitely the most Mm. overworked people (laughs) i think i've ever met (laughs) so i think it would take a bit of a decision on are you willing to to do that but at the moment i I don't have plans either way so that's me giving you a vague answer hopefully (laughs) my boss is watching yes (laughs) Uh, you leave leave the door open but yeah you you go with what you enjoy at the time and and move with that i guess and and i'm gonna keep trying to publish journal papers, you know, keep keep that up, it's supervising students and stuff like that. So I'm definitely kind of in between and I, I want to keep that up. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure the, the supervising uh, students sort of gives you a bit of a feel of, uh, well, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think sometimes that my supervisor uh, or some professors that I know have the best job in the world because they get to impart their knowledge and then that gives them a really good feeling of you know i'm i'm helping the next generation out and i've had a very limited amount of uh, supervision uh, that has sort of given me that little boost of i'm i'm, I'm doing a good thing for someone else <laughs> yeah and it, it's something i'd really like to try is lecturing i just want to try it because mm-hmm. i always think it, they they make it look easy but if you've got to produce these very technical courses you've got to deliver them to maybe hundreds of students plus at a time especially at Bristol I remember attending a course in my first year of my um, doctorate where my supervisor was was the lecturer and there must have been 300 plus students in it it was so big and it was Mm -hmm. weird because I just had one-on-one time with him and then here was him in front of this I, I kind of forgot that academics also have to do that and but that's yeah. that's that's a part of it that I would really like. I think. Yeah, it's it's having communication skills on steroids. Mm, it 
but I, I, I just want to, I want to try it. And, and, and Claudia, like you mm. said there, um, I think both you and I and, and anyone else who's done a, a more industrial doctorate has probably had limited opportunity to do that supervision, even, even just sort of labs and things. You're just less in contact with students. And I think when you do get in contact with them, so I'm starting to, to experience it now, PhD proposals and potentially supervising people, it does make you feel like it, it's really enjoyable because you are kind of, uh, I don't know, it, it makes you, I, I always think you, you think you know less than you do know, but that kind of somehow validates that, no, you do know a lot more than you think yeah, you know. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> You know. Yeah, you're you're constantly there with somebody who's just starting to learn this material from fresh, and you realise, oh, actually, I've I've done quite a lot of work here, and it's a nice mm. sort of way to put your own knowledge and your experience into perspective. Yeah, and and interestingly, Claudia, once you you're just finishing, I don't know what stage you are of like writing up or anything, but once you've got this book thing that you've written, this piece of work. <laughs> I just found myself. I kept opening the PDF. I, I, I never paperweight. printed it out, <laughs> but it, but even if it's a paperweight, you still feel very like, oh, that I actually did. Proud. I yeah, actually it's, did it's it. A... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. I think and I mean, the sorry, the the best way to learn is to teach. You know, you have to be one hundred percent able to understand and then synthesize your material to then be able to teach it. So. That's, I mean, definitely big admiration to any of uh, my lecturers that I've been inspired by. I've, I mean, in fact, I have a, a short story. I was flying back in September and behind me was my lecturer from my first year mechanics and materials uh, wow. unit. So this is my first year in undergraduate. Mm. Uh, so now eight, eight, nine years ago. And I was like, should I say anything? Should I not? And at the end of the plane, when everyone stands up, I decided, let's go, let's go for it. And I said to him, hi, you were my first year at Mechanics and Materials lecturer. You were really inspiring. Just to let you know, I'm now doing a PhD in materials. Mm. And he was really happy. Mm. So, you know, it goes to show that it it does really matter, the people that teach you and, you know, inspire you to maybe do what they do at the very beginning of your career, especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I would say that even right back to, and this is kind of, I know that a lot of people say this, but right back to school, my physics teacher in school was amazing. And that is what set me off being interested in kind of physics. And then from physics was, was the, with the, the kind of things we see in engineering in university, which is like applied, you know, like a worked example of, uh, this load is applied to this thing, work out these things from it, you know, and you get 10 marks for that or whatever. And that was just like a, it felt like an extrapolation of physics in school. And and it really goes back to those physics lessons that I, and maths as well, that I really started to be interested in it. So I think it it's amazing how your interests can be shaped by your experiences. And a lot of my lecturers at uni were were really good. I remember thinking, uh, quite a few of them actually. They they wrote everything on the board, so they didn't use PowerPoint. That they were always really good because it meant that they were kind of meaning everything that they wrote. You know, they weren't just flicking through slides. They were, you could follow it at the, the you you would also everyone would write down the notes that they were writing on the board, so you could always catch them all because they were only going as fast as they could write. But for some reason, that meant that they really understood it because they would sort of adjust it on the fly and and I just felt like 
having good lecturers, having good teachers is is so important. And it, absolutely, but having the opportunity to potentially do that to, to other people now is really rewarding. Like you're saying, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I want to shift the conversation to so in within the topic of being confident enough to present your work. There's two words that come up again and again when I speak to fellow PhDs, and that is imposter syndrome. Is that something that you struggled with? Can you give us an idea of, you know, the bad bits, the challenges of going through four years of a postgraduate degree? So definitely imposter syndrome is super real. And I think that it's almost the majority of people uh, that I was, when I was doing my doctorate, Almost everyone around me, I think, had a bit of imposter syndrome. It's one of these things where I think that now that I've gone through it, having passed it and then now now having the work published as well is a kind of validation that it, it has taken five or six years to get there, but it's kind of like a final, your imposter syndrome is just imposter syndrome. And like what I would say about that is it's a, it's a very long period where what you're doing isn't validated for a long time because I think the whole time you're thinking, what if I fail this? What if I don't do enough? And it's quite, you get quite a lot of difficult feedback the whole way through. So I think it, if anything, it's absolutely the one thing, the one position you can be in where it reinforces your imposter syndrome all the time. And I found that. I found that the whole, every, every day, I think for a while, especially I would say in the middle of it, so it was four years for me. And in the middle of it, I remember thinking, you get a bit of imposter syndrome, a bit of an existential crisis, thinking, why am I here? Am I right for this? Why am I doing such a terrible job? Some, sometimes it can, it, it picks up. So you get good feedback and your imposter syndrome kind of recedes a bit. And you think, no, I am doing good. I'm doing good. And then you have a bad day. Things go wrong and you think, no, no, I shouldn't be here. And I would say that the key thing to remember is that you feel like you don't belong there, but it's just because you're amongst people who are probably all in the same position. You know, if you go to the outside world, you know, people would probably think you're, what you're doing is amazing. But when you're in your particular research bubble. group, you're in your bubble, exactly, you don't get that outside input. And especially when you're doing a doctorate, you're kind of very inward. And it's dead easy to just think, no, I, I'm, I'm an imposter. But what I would say is, at the end, all of that will be washed away because suddenly everyone's smiling and your thesis is in front of you and you will, you will have because that you'll vibe. you'll have a paperweight. Yeah, yeah. But that viva, that viva moment of saying, yes, you've passed, that's great. And, and it, it's, it's that thing of you probably are doing a great job. It's just that it takes a while for anyone to, to, to give you the, the absolute thumbs up on it. So... It's difficult. I don't I don't know if there's a way to help that other than making sure there's a kind of community of students, you know, and that supervisors are aware of that. That mm-hmm. and I think that most of them are that they're aware of the fact that it it takes a lot of stamina, mental stamina to get through it and a lot of second guessing yourself. In a way though, that is what makes what change why I think it's so valuable. Because you come out of it and suddenly you, you feel quite confident because you've suffered for four years. <laughs> you <laughs> you've know? O- overcome such a difficulty yeah. of yeah, justifying to yourself that you do know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I guess, again, when you then go into industry, you're back in a world where not everybody has this same experience. And you have 
learnt things that other people haven't learnt and you can work in ways other people can't. So it all sort of helps to support, again, as you move further and further away from the PhD, that, oh, I, I did actually learn something in that time. Yeah, and I've, I found that academia is quite... It, well, academia is known for being pretty a brutal environment where nothing is ever good enough because that's how it operates, isn't it? And then that's how peer review works, is that nothing is good enough until, okay, you've you've really distilled it down to the, okay, that's good enough, you know? But it's it's an uphill struggle to get there. Whereas industry, I think, operates, it's not really like that. It's kind of, everyone thinks you're a genius if you've, you know, done a PhD and not really, but they they value it a lot just kind of at face value you know the you don't get that scrutiny that you do in academia so it's valuable to experience both but i think if you're if you're in your phd you need to remember that that's just the way that it works that's how research works and that's an incredibly valuable thing to learn and to know and you'll come out of it a lot a lot stronger because you'll to be honest be able to withstand quite a lot of feedback and be very self critical as well so you'll always be trying to sort of Absolutely. Do best, and I think, yeah. yeah, especially going back to uh, going into my final year, shifting from writing industrial reports and presentations where the focus is, you know, keep it brief, keep it to what were the key results. You don't even need to reference it. It's not going to be peer reviewed to going through writing my first paper. I'm sure, Matt, you can tell me your own experience. It's scrutinized to the T. Yeah. Um, and often by scrutinised by people who aren't necessarily experts in your field, but are expert academics. So you have to consider it, consider what they're saying from an academic point of view, saying, you know, is their feedback, it, it, it's good feedback, it makes it more readable for someone who doesn't know that industry, but perhaps what they're saying in terms of the technical details, you can actually sit there and argue. And it, it's quite interesting, the first time you have to sit down and argue you again realise, oh, actually, I've, I'm kind of the, the specialist in this very small field. And I think that helps, again, to justify your, your or get through your imposter syndrome because you can really show that you do know your stuff. Mm-hmm. But certainly my first round of peer reviews, mm. I thought, gosh, he's, he's right. I have phrased this in a way that it could potentially mean this. It's so interesting because it's again going back to it's not all for us STEM PhDs. It's so much about written and obviously oral communication if you go down the lecturer route or if you present your work in conferences. Um, and it's you know, how you place your words will be scrutinised to mean one thing or another in a way that you wouldn't have experienced if you'd just gone through the grad scheme into industry route. Yeah, and it, it's. Mm-hmm. I think what you said there, Claudia, about the writing uh, and communication is it's the most sort of rigorous assessment process of that, I think, that can be gone through is kind of peer-reviewed technical journal papers. And it really, I think, makes you a better writer and a, it 100% makes you a better communicator. And that's something else that I kind of think about when people, it definitely doesn't seem to apply now, but is people used to say that a PhD is actually a detriment rather than a benefit. You know, it's, it disadvantages you, some, disadvantages you somehow. And I just don't think that's true at all. I think it gives you a different set of skills. But those are skills that I would say in this world that we now live are, are, are incredibly valuable. Things like getting investment for something you're trying to pitch. If you're good at presenting and you can 
summarize technical points, but do it in a way that that can speak to a variety of audiences, you know, can really cut through to investors or, or the like, you know, you're you're gonna go far, I think. And that every single person who does a PhD will have to be good at communicating or be assessed on their communication skills constantly because you have to go to conferences, you have to do written communication conference papers, journal papers, all sorts of things. And it's all, you know, kind of scrutinized. And I think, mm-hmm. so what it's doing is turning out a lot of people who have those skills. And I think those are really mm-hmm. in demand at the moment. So bringing it back to giving advice and imparting your knowledge to the next generation, I'm, I'm going to ask it as if there's one piece of advice that you could give your first year NGD self or PhD self, what would it be? I think... The the biggest thing when you're in your first year is to not I once got good advice which was hold your nerve, which it's going to feel like it's going to feel like a bit of a mess, probably. It's going to feel like you've kind of been dropped into this world that everyone else has been in for years and you don't understand it. It's possibly going to feel like you are in need of lots of support and you're expecting lots of attention which you don't get. So I think hold your nerve but also manage try and manage expectations where I think it it would help if we were better at kind of briefing incoming PhD students as to what to expect but no one would apply (laughs) yeah yeah exactly no but I think that people would apply but they would just be less shocked by that initial experience which people need to understand that you need to understand that it's it's not going to be this big organized experience that's very structured because that's got to come from you A piece of advice I would also give in that sense is in your first year, enjoy yourself. I think it happens in kind of undergrad as well, where we have a tendency to when we join something, we really want to kind of swat it. Well, yeah, we want to really, really. Mm. Oh no, I've just, I've just started. I really want to do well. When actually, that's the time when you can really have a lot of freedom and explore, and you're not bogged down in lots and lots of experimental work and whatever else. And what you'll find as well is that the last eighteen months or so is when it all happens so there'll be a big period of nothing happening and you'll feel like that in your first year and you'll be like where am I what am I doing but then later in it I think it will all happen at once so don't sweat the first year too much embrace the chaos I don't know if I can say that (laughs) That you have spoken so many truths I feel like I'm redoing your NGD all over again (laughs) mostly about the part of doing it all in the, the last 18 months Okay, so for our first episode, Alex, we thought that we'd try out um, a little segment. So the segment is a quick fire round of questions. And for each episode, we'll have uh, three questions that are either yes or no answers or multiple choice. And all three of us answer at the same time on the count of three. And at the end of the questions, we'll discuss our answers. So obviously, the theme of this episode has been uh, life or career post-PhD. Uh, and Alex has given us some some great insight and advice into his job to graduate from its doctorate. So it's only appropriate that our first question relates to work and more specifically the work to life balance. So for our first question, the two options are live to work or work to live. So here we go. Three, two, one. Work to live. I cheated. (laughs) You you took a secret option there. I did take a secret option. All right, so me and Alex are in in agreement here. Well, why why neither? Um, 
Because I think they both imply that there is no work-life balance. Yeah, that, that's probably fair. I, I think... Why did you answer? So I really enjoy the work I do, but I, I do it to form a larger part of my whole life. And I think I can, I can get the work-life balance in that because the work <laughs> makes up the, the interesting bit of... or part of the interesting part of the life mm-hmm. without sacrificing or reducing any of the other things I do. Okay, Alex. So if I'd, if I'd known about the secret option, neither, I would have said that, I think. But I, I adhere to the rules, you see. Um, yeah. But I, I, think this is an, I think this is an almost impossible question because I, I, mm. I agree with you, Claudia, in that while it is important that you don't sacrifice your whole life to work, I think that your work does give you a lot of fulfillment and happiness outside of it. And I think that, so yes, while you want to live, you also want to try and be your happiest, your best with your work. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. if you're fully in that live to work, you know, live to work mode, then you might end up kind of resenting your work. And I think that it takes up such a big mm-hmm. part of your life that you can't, you can't do yeah, that. Yeah, 40 hours so, a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, or more. <laughs> and you have to do it. So you, you don't want to be resigning that to just something you have to do every week. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Okay, we're all on the same page. Okay, this one is potentially quite contentious uh, and we've already touched on it in the episode. Do you think a PhD gives you better career prospects? Let's say better career prospects in the UK. Three, two, one. Yes. Yes. Okay. That, that's an easy one for us. Know, yeah. Good to know. I think the worst possible outcome would have been Alex saying no. After, <laughs> after yeah, I, I, I may have quit there and there. <laughs> it deletes the podcast episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think, uh, obviously, touched on this already in the mm. episode, the, the network, both the soft skills and the technical skills that you develop just are invaluable at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah and absolutely. I, I think it's, well, I don't know if it's changing, but I just feel like there's a lot of jobs now where they really value that. It doesn't matter if it's not you're not working in the science or something that you did your doctorate in. It's more the soft skills that that brings and, and also just the, the depth of technical work that you've done. I think people find that really appealing uh, in terms of, of employing you. So, Okay, so for the final question, this is relating to when in your life or when in your career do you think is best to do a PhD? So we'll elaborate on this once we give our answers but for now the options are early or late so let's say early is for example straight after uni three two one early okay 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 go on then claudia why why late so i've obviously done it early so i well i did five years of an undergraduate degree which is already on the longer side with a year in industry and I took my own industry like you, Alex, to sort of gauge what it would be like to work there. Obviously, a very naive decision to just base that on one year. And then went straight to the PhD. And what I found was that I kept comparing myself to fellow PhD students who had had a couple of years in industry, had had a feel for what sort of technical problems their industry was trying to answer, and then may have even proposed a PhD project themselves that they were now working on. And I found that prog- that progression way more natural than what I had done, which was, you know, 
blindly go into an industry and a technical problem that I, I had to familiarise myself with for the for a good two years of, of my PhD. Mm. That's yeah, that's interesting. I think I think we touched on it in, in the rest of the episode, but I think whilst I like early and, and going straight from your undergrad so that you've got the most time to to make the use of your PhD as you move into your career. I think if you can get any industrial experience at all, it's incredibly valuable and it can help to, even just a little bit, even in an unrelated field, helps you to start to place what you want to do at the PhD and for the project Mm -hmm. in a way that going in from undergraduate with never any industry experience just makes it that little bit harder. What about you, Alex? Yeah, I agree with Matt in that I think... I think you shouldn't rush to do it straight away. I think that you should, it's almost like there should be a required cooling off period after your undergrad (laughs) where (laughs) you're not allowed to just jump into it because I don't think, like you said, I think you get a much more well-rounded view of everything, of what a job is like, just a bit more perspective when you go away and do a job, even for a couple of years and then come back and you'll know why you're there much better. I also think that there is a good reason, though, to get in and do it before kind of later in life, because I do think there's a special kind of suffering involved where it's easier while you're younger. And frequently, it will probably be you and a bunch of people around your age and you'll be stuck in it together. So that it makes that side of it easier to cope with if you do it a bit earlier. But it is also never too late to go back. I think that if you do leave it much later, you'll have a really good appreciation of why you're there and what your interests are. And you'll you'll really you will enjoy the experience for that. But so yeah. that was a kind of <laughs> everything answer. But I, I guess my, my answer is <laughs> my answer is still early, but not straight away. Like go away for a while and then then mm. then do it. That'll benefit you, I think. I do want to find out about the last the last question, which is you know, what what's next for you and so, you know, where are you now <laughs> so what's what's next for me uh, so believe it or not well I still can't like quite believe it but I turned 30 recently uh, and that's made me congratulations thank, thank you thank you very much <laughs> but it's it's definitely seen me reflecting a lot on my plans for the future over the past and that's been over the past year or so I feel fairly settled where I am in Glasgow. You know, I've I've got a job I really like. I've I've bought a flat actually. So it, you know, I've kind of done those kind of adult things, but I still have to think those about big it. Big ticks. Yeah, big ticks, <laughs> but I, mm. I still have to think about it, you know. Um for career at times, as I said, I am still interested in that full academic existence, trying to publish a lot, supervising students. And I do have a, a dream in the back of my head of being a professor one day. But then I also like the kind of pace and scale of industry as well. And part of me also just wonders whether I should do something completely different, you know, to close that door. So to answer the question, I don't know, but I think the answer is my is in my head. I just haven't found it yet. That's a, that's a good answer, I think, and a good place to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you've found the right balance in between and that, you know, you're you're doing great in your career after PhD and hopefully have uh, inspired some of our listeners who are going through the trials and tribulations of doing a PhD, maybe someone in undergrad who might be thinking of doing a PhD. I know that all of many of the experiences that you've 
talked us through have definitely resonated with me. Um, so thank you very much for uh, spending your time to speak to us. It's been great uh, to hear about your experiences and your advice. And I mean, I'm going to say we hope to have you back when when this little project grows. <laughs> yeah, see where you are in the next. Yeah, who knows, five, ten years. <laughs> thank you very much for having me, and I, I hope I I hope I have helped some people if if anyone's listening, and I hope I do come back. That'd be great. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. No Take problem. Care. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for listening. This episode was brought to you by Claudia Jimenez Martin and Matt Bone. The episode was edited and produced by Ivan Moroviev, Rachel Ward, and Paul Spencer from the Bristol Doctoral College. We hope to see you again for the next episode.